thank you for listening to this podcast message from Stowe Presbyterian Church. This message was given by Pastor Bob Stanley. We've been talking about the book of Romans. And somebody asked me last week, was the church at Rome, was it a, a big church, a little church? And from what we know from New Testament history, the church in Rome was, as you ex- would expect, a, a large church. It was a, a vibrant and growing church, just as Rome was the center of culture and of life in, in the Roman Empire. The church there was large, but like all New Testament churches, it was struggling with what to do next. What should we do now? How should we change and adapt? You see, the church in Rome was very cosmopolitan. It was very diverse. There were so many different people from different backgrounds coming to be a part of it. It had some growing pains across cultural lines, across lines of age. Those who knew the Jewish faith prior to Jesus coming and those on the other end who were not of the Jewish heritage or the, the, uh, the Judaism, the practices of Judaism were new to them. They had no idea what to do with that. So they had a completely dissimilar way of looking at their faith and they struggled with how they all could be a part of the church. And I was trying to think about how this worked this week and how it, it came together and I really, I'm not even going to get into the number of ways God made this clear to me. The struggles in the church in Rome are very similar to the struggles of the church today. In our individual struggles as we are the church, the people, as individual believers, and we all struggle with this idea that we feel unworthy and plain unrighteous. And that leads us to reaction. We want to prove our worth Not just to God, but to other people and to each other as well. And I was thinking about that internal pressure like it grew in the Church of Rome and how I'm seeing the church in America struggle in the culture we find ourselves in. And I was thinking about recently when I was flying, I've mentioned this before, when you're my size and you fly and you realize that you're going to spend three to six hours of your life sitting on a five-gallon bucket with one inch of foam for your seat, and that's about what it's like, You struggle, and you want to get good seats. And nowadays with some airlines, the ones that pastors can afford to fly on, you don't know what seat you get. It's kind of like bingo. You hope that they call your number first, or you get to the airport soon enough that you can get a good seat. And if you want a seat with any leg room, you're going to pay an extra 15 to 40 bucks. It's just the way it is. But I was thinking about as everybody gets ready to get on the airplane, and they start this you know, and they, they cram more of you in the plane. So they, they announce, hey, we're going to start boarding the flight. You know, you want to make sure that you're here for that. Zone one, now boarding. Now, if you know anything about modern airplanes, everybody seems to be in zone one. Yet, zone one's the smallest part of the plane. Have you noticed that? And if you're like me and you've gotten on a plane recently, you'll see those people and they try to act like they're not running. But they're running. They do this. <laughs> Have you seen people do this at the airport? Or like when they open a checkout line, like when the third line at Walmart opens. And I know all of you say you don't shop at Walmart, but I see you all there. I happily admit that I shop at Walmart. Right? And you see they open that third lane at Walmart. There's 19 lanes and only two are open. And when that third one opens, everybody tries to do the I'm not running run. You know, everybody knows what I'm saying, right? Okay. 
But yet, you see them, and they say, no, you're not in zone one, you're actually, and I'm looking, and you're in zone five, and I'm like, that's right, turkey, get behind me. You're behind me. And I got on a plane recently, and I was thinking, there's a TV story about a, a lady who was very rude to some larger, I, I hate it when I get on a plane, because I'm 290 pounds, and I'm six foot five. When I get on a plane, and people see me, they all have this look on their face like this. It's a look of absolute terror, and that look tells me everything I need to know. And the look is, please, for the love of heaven, don't let this Neanderthal sit next to me. I personally understand this. It does not offend me. It, didn't, it doesn't offend me at all. They want to make sure they get the best seat they want to make sure they get on and they can get stuff where it needs to be. They want to have a place to put their bag. Whatever it is, we all want to be first. We all want to be right. We all want to be comfortable. We want to be set up. We want to say, look, I have that taken care of. And deep down inside, everywhere where this bubbles up in our lives, we struggle because we want everything just to be settled. That's what we're looking for. We want to make sure we've done everything we can and we've got it all together. But what we're learning from God's word in the book of Romans is our relationship with God is not built on this human effort. And we struggle with that in the core of our being. And as we finish up chapter 4 in Romans here, as we've looked at this idea of faith alone, that alone meets alone, we talked about last week and these four arguments that Paul brings up we're going to cover the other two of those today, and we're going to look at this idea of what is worth in God's eyes. And how does that work together with our need to prove ourselves, because we want to be the first ones on the plane to glory. We're going to look at this idea, what God sees as worthy in our need to be first, to prove ourselves, to get it right. So we're going to open up. Romans chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are able to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. 
That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. These four arguments we started talking about last week. This idea that faith alone, that alone means alone. And that's hard for us because that means it's not about us. It's not about us running to get on the plane. It's not about us. And as we looked at Paul's four explanations against these common things, against this pecking order that was starting to come to life in the church at Rome, it's not how it works. It's not how it works today. You're not saved by those little things you're doing every day and you're not saved, as we saw last week, uh, by what you do at church. Those are all good things, and they can bring God's grace. They are means to grace, just like we came to the table. That doesn't save us, but it is a way that we experience God's grace. But no, more than that, we're going to learn today, it's not about the rules. And like your grandpa or grandma or Sunday school teacher or whomever may have told you, mom or dad, it's not all about you. It's not about checking the boxes. It's not about your personal magnetism, and I think a lot of times in church, we inadvertently do this. In life, we do this everywhere, so why wouldn't we do it at church? It's kind of like we think if we get a certain set of rules done, if we have these five things we do, everything's going to be better, or we have like this spiritual Dale Carnegie course, I'm going to win friends and influence Jesus. We're going to kind of do it this way, and if I get God on my side, if I'm just like, hey, you know, I'm your guy, right? that somehow that's going to make a difference. And what Paul's telling the Jewish believers in the church, he's saying, it's not about that at all. You see, the Jewish believers, and many of them had even lived before Jesus, they had grown up in this very rigid way of living. They thought how they lived, how they ate, the way that they practiced their sacrifices at the temple, the way that they did certain things with with water and with hyssop and with wine and showbread and candlesticks, the way that they weighed out even the mint and the dill that they put in their food and they counted the steps that they took and they didn't do anything on the Sabbath. They didn't do any of those things that would put them apart. All those little tiny minutia things they did, they thought that God counted that as their righteousness. And Paul, who was a Pharisee, who was a great leader in the church, he says, hey guys, the problem is, you were wrong the entire time. Think about how scandalous that would be for them. They really felt that because they were the ones that were Abraham's people, that were Abraham's guys, they had a leg up on these other guys that had come into the church. Yeah, God will take all of us, but we sit in zone one on the plane of salvation. We get the better seats. We're going to get definitely a place to put our bags those tiny little lunchbox. Do you ever notice on a plane now, the thing you put your bag in is like the size of the lunchbox you used to take to school? When you're my size, the bag you can take on a plane, I can carry a snack in that bag and a pair of underwear. I don't do that. I carry enough clothes. Don't, don't think anything weird about me. But we all want to make sure that whatever we're allowed to get, we want to be in first place. And the Jewish Christians said, yeah, I'm going to get this right. In fact, I'm going to have evidence. I'm going to have the best resume to hand to God to show him that I have it together. At least I'm not like them. 
And we've seen this unfold in the book of Romans over these four chapters. And Paul calls them out like the people you see at the airport arguing for the upgrade to first class in front of you. There's really no reason they should have a different seat than you, but they have a really good reason why they should have a different seat than you. That's kind of how it felt in the church in Rome. Thank you, God, that I'm not like these shabby people. They don't understand. They've never weighed out their mint and dill, God. They've never gone to this, the temple. They don't know how this all works. We've always been your people. The Christians in the church, in their insecurity, in their knowing of unrighteousness, in their desperation to prove themselves, do we throw this on other people in our world? Today, Not that God doesn't have standards, not that there isn't right and wrong, not that we don't need to repent, but in our attitudes as we treat other people, instead of sharing the grace of God, do we look at them like they should be behind us in line to get on the plane? Paul calls out the Roman church, and he says, that's not how it works at all. You see, he says, you may belong to Abraham, and he may have been God's man, and he did all these great things, but... You see, the law that you think that Abraham had, that didn't come till a lot later. He says, you don't even know your own history. God's law, God's ideas came to this guy named Moses. Hundreds of years later. The funny thing, when we start to feel unrighteous and need to justify ourselves, when we start to want to put other people down, we begin to see our lives our actions, and even our history, our way. We start to slowly revise things just a little bit. Just a little bit. We revise history so it supports us in our mind just a little bit. We do this in our marriages. We do this in our nations, and I mean all nations. I'm not picking on America here by any stretch. I'm kind of sick of people picking on America, to be honest with you. But Paul wants us to know as individuals that the law is not the thing that saves you. Being perfectly obedient, weighing out every little thing. He says the law doesn't save you. In fact, what it, it does is just show you that you need saved. It actually tears your guts out because, as it says in the passage this morning, if there's no law, there's no trespass. But once you know the law, once you see it, you're guilty. So my son got a speeding ticket because that's what he does to make sure my blood pressure stays up. I may mention this, he's flying along in his car coming home to visit recently, and he gets home, he says, Dad, I got pulled over because the speedometer is wrong in my car. <laughs> the funny thing is, he's right. And ultimately, who owns the car? I do. It's on me. You see, he has a larger set of tires on his car to help him because he does camping ministry and he has to go in the woods and he's got a four-wheel drive and all this and he, he takes it in the woods places that people used to take four-by-fours. Nowadays, we take them to dangerous places like Aldi. I don't know. Right? So his tires are just thick enough that his speedometer is off by a couple miles an hour. And he forgot that. And so when the cop pulled him over, he told the police officer, he said, yeah, you're right. I, I, you know, I, I forgot that this is what's going on. I need to get that. I didn't have it. I didn't. But you know what? Speedometer was there. I should have understood it. It's my fault. And the cop said, I'm so glad you're responsible. That's so wonderful that you understand that. Here's your ticket. <laughs> <laughs> it 
That's how it works, though. It's okay. You see, but that's how the law is. The law shows us. My son looked down and realized, once he understood how to calibrate all that, once he knew what it said, he said, oh no, I was speeding. I was speeding. It's on me. It's on me because the law can't save you because you're not going to keep it perfectly. None of us do because I guarantee you what my son was really saying was, I thought I was going seven miles over the speed limit. Instead, I was going 10 or 11. It's always 11. You know that, right? You're always 11 over. I could be walking. I'm 11 over the speed limit if they want to give me a ticket. It's okay. That's what Paul wants us to understand. He says that's why it depends on faith. He says, you guys are tracing back to Abraham. He didn't even have the law. He didn't even know where he stood on all these areas. Because when they get to Exodus 20, when they get to Sinai, God gives them the law. He says, here's ten commandments and here's everything underneath it. But you know what? Even more than that, even though you know you're wrong, that doesn't mean you know how to get right. That's what Paul wants them to understand. He says the law doesn't save you. It doesn't save you. You see, you're saved by faith alone like we learned last week. And it's a gift because the law just brings us condemnation. We know we're guilty. And that leads us into that cycle of trying to prove ourselves in unrighteousness. And Paul says, no, no. You have to understand, actually, you guys, how this all works. It's really important that you understand in your self-righteousness. It doesn't matter if you're in zone 1 or zone 5. You're all still on the sin express. That plane that you think of all your righteousness, it's not going to get you to heaven. It's not going to do it. It's not going to do it because your sin still condemns you. No matter what part of that plane you're on, it still doesn't matter. You're still not getting there in your own efforts. And so Paul wants them to understand that the way that God's word works, they need to see it for what it is, not what they want to be. It's not about them. It's not about them proving themselves and their sin. They want to be all about them. And that changes not only the way they look at their lives, but the entire history of God in humanity. He says it's not about that. He said it's not about that. Churches today struggle with the same thing. If you look at any church, I hear this all the time as a pastor. When people find out I'm a pastor and they get a little bit of starch in their shorts because they're afraid that I'm secretly judging them or something, I don't know. If, if I want to end a conversation with anybody, I'll just make sure they figure out that I'm a minister. I might as well have leprosy. If I'm sitting somewhere and somebody's having a great conversation, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a pastor of a church. I might as well tell them I, I mutilate small animals in my spare time. <laughs> end a conversation. But sometimes when people do carry on a conversation with me, it always has a phrase like this. Well, you know, everybody kind of really sort of believes the same things. That's what everybody says. All churches, whether they're pro-Christian or anti-Christian, everyone will say, all churches really kind of believe the same things. But is that really true? If you go on a lot of church websites, and I'm in the middle of building our new website right now, a simplified one, a scaled one, and it, I just finished our beliefs page, and it's very specific, and it tells us what we believe. We believe in Jesus. We believe in sin. We believe, and we define those things. But really, when you get into the depths of this, what Paul wanted the Jewish believers to understand, it's not just those simple things, but when you dig down into not the what, but the how, it gets a little less clear. As our church 
went to align with the EPC, as we looked at our history coming out of the PCUSA, this became very clear to us because what often happens in a church is somebody else will tell the church what to believe. The pastor, maybe the power players in the church. Now, preacher, if you quit preaching on that, I'll give you money to put that new roof on the building. Oh, that happens. You guys probably grew up or maybe know a church or, you, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Or a denomination will say, well, here's what we believe, but you know what? We don't really believe that anymore. Now we kind of believe this. I'm watching this happen at Christian institutions in our nation right now. Colleges that are Christian colleges that are very quickly changing course because they're all afraid of what people are going to think of them. I want to let you know briefly here about how we know what we believe and what we think. Not just the what, but the how. Not just the big bullet points on the website, but the depths of what we believe. This is the Catechism for Young Children from the original United Presbyterian Church from 1941. This belonged to my mother. When I was a small child, my mother would read this to me. And I would have to memorize the answer. It's the shorter catechism. Maybe you grew up learning this as well. It's a set of questions and answers. It's important. With whom did God the Father make the covenant of grace? Question 43. With Christ his eternal son. Not just the what, but the relationships, the how. My first year in seminary at the RPCNA, the Scottish Covenanter Seminary, the first book they gave me was the Shorter Catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is it, actually. It's the one they gave me. With scripture proofs. I knew a lot of these. You know, this is not really beat up a whole lot. Not because I'm special, but because my mom loved me and she taught me. I'm so thankful for that. What we find in the church now is what they found in the church then, the Church of Rome. We know some of the big points, but we don't know the how. What we're going to be doing with our kids is teaching them that doctrine matters, how things work together matters. Our church, the EPC, is built on the Westminster Confession of Faith from 1647. You may hear us talk about that when our leaders join the church. And as we're going to see, we're going to talk a little bit about how we're doing that in our church this day. We're going to talk a little bit about not just what we know, but how we know it in our church today. This passage has some terms that you may have heard, but you may not know them, how it all fits together. The terms that Paul brings up here to explain to the Romans, justification and sanctification. Those are words, if you read this passage, you may not know. And briefly, I have the questions and answers from the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession is full of not just the what, but the how. And it's all scripture to explain. Every verse of God's word is pretty much covered in that Westminster Confession of Faith. Because the Presbyterian, the Reformed tradition, we didn't want to know just what. We wanted to know how it all fit together in God's word. So when you look at Romans 4 and you look at these passages and you see words like justification, justification is an act of God's free grace. And when he pardons our sins, it's a once and for all thing where God pays for our sins. He does it one time. 
I have a friend that preached on this passage, and he told a great story. It's a true story. It's from Russian history. It's about Tsar Nicholas in Russia. He was out on the battlefield checking in on all the troops, and he went to see the quartermaster at the front lines of the battlefield, and there's a young man who was the son of one of his friends that had been an officer when he served in the Russian military. So he went up, and he's walking through the tent, and he sees the young man passed out on the books, the quartermaster, the logs, and he has a loaded revolver with him. And he has a bottle of alcohol. And as he gets near, he sees that the man has written on the piece of paper, how can I ever pay these debts? And as Nicholas looked in the book, he realized the man had been stealing from the military to pay for his gambling debts. And the more he tried to win back what he owed, the deeper in debt he got. And he wrote, how could I ever pay back such a great debt? He wrote that down. And Nicholas looked, and Nicholas could have, this guy, this is his money, it's his kingdom, right? And as the man was passed out there from exhaustion or from alcohol or what, Nicholas took the pen and signed his name by each of the accounted debts in the book. And at the bottom he wrote, your debt is paid, Nicholas. You can imagine how the young man felt when he woke up. And he saw that his debt had been paid in full. And he was terrified, but when he saw Nicholas, Nicholas said, you've learned from this, haven't you? The young man said, he goes, you're going to make changes now, aren't you? And he said, yes. And see, so the young man then went and continued on his way and did what he should do. Justification is the once and only thing where God pay, pays the debt that we cannot pay. And how we respond to that debt is what we call sanctification. It's when God works in our lives because we understand God's grace, because it has changed who we are. When that happens for us in God's grace, we are made new in Jesus. It's an important thing for us to understand how this works. We're forgiven. It matters because who we are is not who we will become in Christ. That's what God's word has always taught, and that's what we want our kids to learn as well. This is the New City Catechism. You've heard me talk about this. We're going to be teaching our children this because we want them. It's 50-some questions and answers. There are kids' versions for them and there are adult versions of these. These are the questions and answers that all of us that grew up on the Reformed faith used to learn. Not just the what, but the how. Why that matters is because without the how... None of it fits together. We have an incompatible worldview where we try to revise things to make sense to us. I was listening to Fox News in the car yesterday on the radio. If you don't like Fox News, just pretend I said MSNBC. I don't care. But they were talking about what's going on with a politician who's in trouble right now. Some ugly stuff in human history, not just American history, but certainly ours as well. That's wrong and against what God's word clearly taught. It's true. But one of the people on the, on the news anchor's report said something stunning. She's a, a minister and she said, you know what? Forgiveness and grace and mercy are in such short supply in America today. Is that not true? Because when you only know a little bit of the what and not the depth 
the width and the breadth of the how of God's grace, when you don't understand you're a sinner saved by God's grace, when you don't have that identity, it changes everything. And it makes a world that is far more concerned with in its insecurity proving its value than loving and sacrificing for another. This is the only time I'm going to tell you this. Get your phone out if you want. If you have a smartphone, go to the Apple or the Google Store, whatever you have. Download this. It's free. If you want a copy of it, we're going to have them. I want you guys to start going through this and learning these things because the reason our church ceased to be what it was in the Presbyterian tradition is because we stopped teaching the how. Knowing the what of the gospel and the how of redemption will change the why of your life in Christ. You'll find purpose. You'll find purpose that you can teach to other people. You find purpose in the small transactions and how you love and share and care for other people. You see, Abraham didn't have anything in the law to save him. He knew he was a sinner. He didn't even know how bad of a sinner he was. He didn't have a speedometer. He didn't have that all figured out. But what Abraham understood is what we have forgotten. He had faith that God was going to do what he could not do. Abraham was so old, he couldn't have an heir. His wife was so old and she couldn't have a child. And God had promised he would be a father. And as Paul reminds them, not just a father of one nation that would know God, but of many nations, a multitude of nations. He said, you've changed your own history. Abraham was always going to be the father of all these people in God's church by faith. He was justified by faith. God paid a price he could never pay using things he could never have to meet a debt, to pay a debt that he could never pay. This morning I was at McDonald's because I love Egg McMuffins. And I was over on Kent Road at McDonald's and I pulled up to the window to pay. I had my debit card ready. And the lady in the drive-thru said, somebody already paid for your meal. And I was freaked out. And I said, but that, that, and she stopped me and she said, she paid for the car behind you too. I said, is there anybody? She goes, there's no one else to pay for. Only God could do that right before this sermon, right? It really happened. I have the receipt. I can prove it. But you see why I want to prove it? Because I was upset in the depths of my being that there was no law for me to keep, that there was no price for me to pay, that in even understanding not just the what, but the how it all works, I was still struggling because I couldn't do anything. I couldn't pull myself up by my bootstraps, and God does not help those who help themselves. That's not grace. That's not a gift like we learn. That's not sin. Or that's sin. That's arrogance. It's self-deceit. Sit with someone who's struggling with addiction. Someone who's waiting for a treatment and isn't doing well, like we've even prayed for people this morning. Sin destroys, it breaks down everything, and there's sometimes nothing we can do but wait on the grace of God. And Paul says to those Roman Christians that thought they had it all together, all you have is faith in someone else that can do something you can't do. You see, it's not about you. It wasn't about Abraham. He, he couldn't do it. Paul says it didn't matter. He was so old he couldn't 
possibly have kids on his own, nor could his wife. None of this could have happened. All he had was faith that God was going to do. And he had that faith. No matter what happened, he believed in God's promise. But even Abraham wavered. Even he made mistakes. He said, you know, maybe I should go hang out with Hagar. She's kind of hot. And God said, no, that didn't turn out well, by the way. You guys know that, right? But God taught him. God moved him. And he said, God, it's all you. I give you all the glory. I'm going to worship you. It's not just sanctification, justification. We're going to see later. It's also glorification where we say, God, it's all about you. Fully convinced, verse 21 says, that God was able to do what he promised. Paul says, you guys don't even know your own history. You don't even know Abraham's life. He had no possibility. And neither do you and neither do we. And that's why that promise wasn't just for Abraham, but for all of those who would believe it's for us too. It's not about us. I was sitting with a friend as a pastor, my friend J.D. I was in Florida visiting him. He's a good friend. He's a better preacher. He's not available, sorry. Uh, and we were talking about this because he's preached through Romans and I'm looking through Romans and he and I, we, my daughter said, you preach just like him. I said, well, he was one of my mentors. I, you know, it just happens. Thankful for the guy. But I was sitting in this chair. He says, you love this chair, right? I said, yeah. He goes, where are you in Romans? And I told him, he goes, oh, you're going to get to Romans 4. Let me tell you something. This chair I have is from the 1930s. It's this gorgeous, one of those old kind of like glider rocker chairs that look like, you know, basically they suck you in when you sit in them really neat chair he said it's from like the 30s and so he and his wife who is really really good at this stuff they refinished it and they sanded it and sanded it and did all this work on it it was it's beautiful they did a great job on it reupholstered it and he said here's the thing though here's the thing i sanded it we sanded it so fine so perfectly we made it so perfect that we couldn't stain it Woodworking people that are better than me know what I'm talking about right now. There was, there was the stain wouldn't take. It was a hard wood. I think it was, I think it was walnut or something, a hard wood. And it wouldn't take and it wouldn't stick. It would wipe right off no matter what they did. It wasn't rough enough. So they had to rough it all up and it looked really bad, he said. But then the stain stuck. The wood sucked it in. He had to rough it up. When we don't understand that we can't pay the price when we don't understand our own sin when we're busy trying to prove ourselves we don't see the rough edges when we think we're too right or worse yet when we're too desperate to prove ourselves because of that unrighteousness we feel God's grace can't penetrate our hearts and it makes all the difference you see, knowing the what of the gospel and the how of redemption will change the why of your life in Christ. That's why Jesus said to the most religious, the most law-abiding people, he said the tax collectors and the sinners, the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you because they understand their hurt, their rough edges. They know they need them sanded off and they know that they can't sand them off themselves. That they can only receive it by faith. There's nothing they can do to deserve it. There's nothing they can do to prove themselves. And the gospel says no way that you can keep enough rules or be special enough or have it enough together to be justified. And only when 
God knows that he's got you. And when that gospel sinks into your heart, he will sanctify you and sand off those rough edges. That's how it works. That's what we need to recapture in the church. That's what that discipleship we talk about, that process where God changes us, that's what needs to happen. So we aren't like those Pharisees that missed the kingdom of heaven. They thought that getting on the plane first and getting it all right was what it was all about. And God says, no. You see, if you wait for God to stand off all the, if you wait for your, or try yourself to stand off all the rough edges, you won't ever come to Jesus. It'll never happen. Instead, we have to see how the gospel works, that Christ paid the once and for all price. There's nothing you can do but follow in faith and accept the grace that Christ had granted, the salvation that God brings and that God offers to us. And then God can change our lives. He can change every moment of it. Every day of your life can be different. God can indeed give you a new life, a new hope, a new vision for a future in him. Matt Chandler wrote a great book called The Explicit Gospel. Good younger pastor. He's a great, a great thing he says. He says, the idolatry that exists in a man's heart always wants to lead him away from his Savior and back to self-reliance, no matter how pitiful that self-reliance is or how many times it has betrayed him. Friends, quit racing to get on the plane. Lay down your life in front of God and understand that he already paid the price you can never pay. And he's calling you to belong to him. Let that gospel soak into you so that God can have all of you. And then don't worry, he'll stay with you. He'll never leave you like we talked about earlier today. And he will sand off those rough edges until the kingdom comes. Let's pray. Father, that you would have all of us, that you would change our lives, that we would belong completely to you, that we would understand it's not just those little bullet points or those little rule kind of following things that we, we can't simplify to make it just about us and we can't make it something we can manage because we need a Savior who can transform our hearts and lives, who can do the things we cannot do. God, that we would belong completely to you, that we would understand it's not about our aptitude, our value, our worth, our, our box checking, but it's surrendering to you and giving ourselves to you. Father, if there's anyone here that has not given you their lives this day, that I would ask now that even in the quietest moment that they would confess that they have a need for a Savior, that they need to be made new, that they need to belong to you, that if there's something they're holding on to, some little sliver of I can do this myself, or you know what, my sin's more comforting than knowing that I'm forgiven, whatever it is, God, that we would lay it down in this moment, that we would give it to you, that we would belong more fully to you. God, draw us in, change us, use us, sand off those rough edges in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name.